Please take your Bibles this evening and turn to Luke 24. It is an exciting evening, particularly in this um, this passage of Scripture. We're finishing the Gospel of Luke. Uh, it's been a little over two years since I began. I began on a Sunday morning, so we kind of flipped it to a Sunday evening about halfway through uh, when we finished Ecclesiastes in the morning. Or, excuse me, no, before, when we started Ecclesiastes in the morning is when we flipped uh, to Luke in the evening. Um, and it's been, a, it's been a longer, of course, it's the longest Gospel. It's a long book, and it's been a long time coming for us to get through the Gospel. But this evening is it. We come to the end of Luke uh, with verses uh, 13 through 53 of chapter 24. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been learning about the historical account of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. In this resurrection, we found not only wonder and awe at God's power and God's goodness, But we also recognized it as the very essence of the gospel itself. That as we even studied this morning in our Sunday school hour, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then we are of all men most miserable. Now last week we spent time at the end of our study, two weeks ago, at the end of our study... Uh, speaking about the necessity of the resurrection from 1 Corinthians 15. We spoke briefly in those first few verses of the Gospel, and then we spent time speaking of the necessity and how the resurrection ought to touch and impact our lives particularly. This evening I'd like to go back there for just a few moments, both at the beginning of our sermon and then again at the end of our sermon, as we consider uh, in a more uh, particular way some elements of what we find in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3-6. through 6. And the Bible says this, Paul writing here, he says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried... And that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. So the Bible tells us several things here that we call the gospel. First is that Jesus died for our sins. We are sinners. We cannot get ourselves to heaven. We cannot earn our way. We cannot deserve our way. No man, no, no, no human uh, uh, person in, in our lives, our, our loved ones can buy or earn our fellowship with God, our righteousness before God, that Jesus alone, the God-man, God in flesh, came, died on the cross for our sins. This is important to understanding the gospel. The Bible then tells us that Jesus was buried, that he was dead, indeed, was dead. He was buried. He was buried and he stayed in that tomb for three days, and then that he rose again the third day. According to the scriptures, this is important to understanding the gospel. This is the uh, uh, this is essential to the gospel. But Paul goes on here. The Bible then tells us that he was seen of men. First of Cephas, as Paul records it in verse five, then of the twelve. After that, he was a scene of above five hundred at once. This is eyewitness testimony. And what Paul is doing here is he is appealing to this eyewitness testimony as a validation of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, if this was a story concocted by his disciples in order to um, bring about some sort of 
uh, staying power to this religious system. Well, it would be one thing for, at this point, 11 men, those 11 apostles that are still alive, um, or disciples that are still alive, it would be one thing for 11 men to claim that they were together and that they had seen Christ. It would be another thing for 511 plus people to all be able to, without somebody saying, by the way, this is a hoax, come together and say, we have all seen Christ. The reality of so many eyewitnesses, of which Paul says, you can go talk to them. You go ask them yourself, and they will tell you this. If this were not true... One of the, the, the most sure things I can say about this is that if this were not true, if Jesus had not risen from the dead, if this were some sort of hoax, we would, without doubt, have found some record in history that this was all one big hoax. There would be enough people saying, no, this is not true. No, we know they took his body. No, we know they hid it somewhere. That there would be a complete destruction of the historical narrative. But that has not taken place. This many years later, some 20 years later, 30 years later, Paul is saying he rose from the dead and the people are still alive that saw him and you can go talk to them. He's appealing to evidence, to eyewitness accounts to establish the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To this end, we study this evening a couple of these eyewitness accounts. We've already talked about a few of them. We have talked about Mary Magdalene and the women as they saw uh, first Mary Magdalene seeing Jesus at the tomb, then the women as they were running to tell the disciples. We've talked about those eyewitness accounts. We continue in this vein this week. And we do so beginning in Luke 24, verse 13. We'll read verses 13 through 16 where the Bible says this. And behold, two of them, as we pick up in the context, these would be the disciples of Jesus, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about threescore furlongs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were holden that they should not know him. So the first account we have of, of the, the eyewitness accounts that we'll study this week is two disciples of Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Now these two were not of the twelve. They were others of uh, other than the twelve. We know from the text as we continue to dig, one of them is named Cleopas. And they're walking on the first day of the week to Emmaus. There's no consensus as to exactly where Emmaus is. It's not a city that we have a firm understanding of where it was located uh, in Jerusalem, other than what Luke tells us himself, which is that it was three score furlongs from Jerusalem. Now, a score is a unit of measure that means 20. And so three score would be three times 20 or 60 furlongs from Jerusalem. So 60 furlongs is the distance that we're working on here. Now, the text in the text, the measurement itself was not actually a furlong. This is one of those times where the King James translators changed the measurement to something that would, would be more understandable to the people of their day. So a furlong was not something that they had back uh, in Roman times. It was something that they had in the times of the 1600s when the King James Bible was penned. In the Greek, the, the unit of measurement is actually a Roman stadion. And it was called a stadion because they would make their stadiums based upon that unit of measurement. 
the, the distance that a person would run in a stadium would be a stadion. A Greek stadion was equal to about 600 Greek feet. And I say Greek feet because the unit of measurement that is a foot has changed quite a bit from time to time. Uh, we say a foot is, six, uh, is 12 inches. Uh, that was not always what a foot was. And depending on who you talk to and at what time in history, that's a little bit different. But 600 feet would be a general idea here. A furlong is about 660 feet. So the King James translators used furlong as a general distance measurement that could be understood in the time that the King James Bible was written. Of course, we're not in that time. Um, so we go to feet to understand. And 660 feet would be one furlong. Thus, 60 stadion or 60 furlongs would be a little bit less than seven miles from Jerusalem. Long story short, a little bit less than seven miles uh, was their journey. At the average walking rate of a human, which is 3.1 miles per hour, it would have taken them uh, around three hours to walk this journey. So they've got a three-hour walk ahead of them going from Jerusalem to wherever Emmaus is in that, um, that distance surrounding wherever... Um, seven miles in whatever direction uh, Emmaus was. And while they are walking, the Bible tells us that Jesus himself drew near unto them and went along with them on their journey, and he was listening to their speech. The text does tell us, however, that these being disciples of Jesus, knowing what he looks like, knowing who he is, that their eyes were holden. That word means uh, to be retained or to be ruled over, to be seized, to be taken. That they were not allowed by God divinely to understand who was walking with them. Jesus uh, re removed from them the capacity to recognize him. So he walked with them effectively as a stranger. Now this is not the first time that we've seen something like this happen. Mary, when she was in the garden tomb, if we recall, she was crying and she heard a voice and she thought it was the gardener. And she says, where have they taken my, my Lord? And, and then he says her name, Mary, and she recognizes Jesus. But it was not immediate. We perhaps even see a similar thing in John when um, Peter is restored uh, when he, he goes a fishing, right? And as he's fishing with the disciples, this would be in Galilee after Jesus' resurrection. He says that they were fishing and a man calls from shore asking if they've caught anything. They said no. He said, cast your net on the other side and they pull in the fish. And then John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, told Peter, it's the master. Now, whether it was just such a distance that they couldn't recognize him or whether it was this similar idea that, that Jesus had withheld their capacity to recognize him until such time as he did some work that, that reflected his character, uh, we don't really know. But either way, this is not the first time that we've come across this idea that Jesus uh, is withholding from someone the recognition of his identity. And the reason why he did this um, is... I, I suppose we, we could question it, but it would seem as though he did this in order that he might uh, listen, speak, draw them out, understand some things before revealing himself to them. And then in revealing himself to them, uh, it caused them to think inward, to turn inward and to think about why didn't I recognize him to begin with? We continue in the text then. And the Bible says in verses 17 through 19, and he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? And the one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, 
Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people. So Jesus is listening to these men talk along this three-hour journey, and then at some point he strikes up and he says, What manner of communications are these? What, what are we speaking about here? And this is obviously not because Jesus did not know. I mean, they're talking about him, right? Nor is it that Jesus was seeking to be deceptive here. But as I mentioned, this is a continuation of a strategy that Jesus has used all throughout his ministry. Throughout his ministry, he has asked questions of people, though he knows all men and he knows their hearts and he knows all things. He has asked questions of people in order to draw them out, to make them think, to reveal their hearts to themselves. This is something that in some ways we see all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve partook of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they hide themselves and God asks, where are you? And then they reveal themselves and he says, what have you done? Have you eaten of the fruit that I told you? He's asking them questions and in doing so, drawing out their conscience, drawing out their culpability. So Jesus regularly does this. God, uh, in the Old Testament, we see that record regularly did this. And the text tells us that one of the men there was named Cleopas. Now he asked Jesus whether or not he was a stranger to Jerusalem and so had not known the things that had transpired over the past couple of days. Uh, kind of the idea being what, what we would look at someone and say, well, have, have you been living under a rock, right? How could you not know what's going on here? Uh, how could you not have heard what was happening? Are you a complete stranger uh, to Jerusalem? And Jesus, again, he does not say, I don't know these things or I do know these things. He simply says, what things? And the men begin to explain what had taken place. In verse 19, we've already read, they speak of the identity of Jesus. They call him a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. They continue that description beginning in verse 20. The text says this, as Cleopas, we would perhaps believe Cleopas, maybe the other one was speaking, but either way, they begin to tell Jesus about the, the events. It says in verse 20, And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. So this is still that same day. This is the day of his resurrection, right? Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulchre. And when they found not his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulchre and found it even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. So these disciples were clearly there when the women got back to tell the group of men that they had seen the risen Lord, that, that, the, that the tomb was empty. They were there for that part. They had eyewitnessed that part. And then they begin on their road to Emmaus. So they had not been able to, to hear the end of the story. They leave. All they've heard is that these women went, they, they saw Jesus, they claimed to have seen Jesus, then some of the disciples went, we know from last week that would have been Peter and John, to look at the tomb, and they could validate that the tomb was empty, but neither one of them had seen Jesus. 
And that's the point where they began their, their journey to Emmaus, and they've not heard anything else of the goings-on. Remember, a couple of weeks ago, or last time when we were in this text, we were saying how we need to be careful with our preconceived notions that would make us think that all of these events happened within the span of, like, minutes or, or even an hour. It may have been several hours throughout the day. Right, Many hours, uh, long periods of time between each of these sightings, between each of these interactions to where uh, various things could be happening. People could be coming and going in between these interactions. So at this point, as we hear these two men and they're speaking to Jesus about these things, a good word that we might use to describe their, um, their thought process is skepticism. These women said that they've seen Jesus. The tomb is certainly empty, but uh, we haven't really had enough evidence yet to know whether or not he's actually alive. It's just this one group of women who have said this thing. Um, Their skepticism, however, at this point, we must understand, is not simply objectivity. It might be enough to say if, 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 uh, if they had heard nothing else of Jesus and had heard that he's risen from the dead. Okay, skeptical, we can be that. But the fact that Jesus, throughout his ministry, had said on many, of occa- many occasions that he would rise from the dead, and now the women said they've seen him and his tomb is empty and they still haven't believed yet, goes beyond skepticism and objectivity and, and, and breaches into faithlessness. And we know this specifically because of the way Jesus responds to them, beginning in verse 25. The Bible says, Then he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus does rebuke them here for their faithlessness, their, their slowness of heart to believe. He tells them, and notice this, this is interesting. Notice he does not rebuke them for not believing Jesus when Jesus said he would rise from the dead. He rebukes them for not believing the prophets. For the prophets have said this for a really, really long time. Their slowness of heart is not laid at the feet of their unwillingness to have heard what Jesus said when he said, I must die and rise again. Their slowness of heart is laid at the feet of the Old Testament scriptures, which they have not regarded in that they did not believe what the scriptures had said, that Messiah must die and must raise again. Jesus speaks as if every reader of the Old Testament should fully understand that the Christ must suffer and die. The fact that the Christ needed to die in order to be glorified by the Father ought to be a basic truth that is drawn not just from New Testament theology, but from Old Testament theology. But Jesus did not simply rebuke them and move on. He began to expound this to them. The Bible says, beginning with Moses, Moses we would understand to be the first five books of the, of, uh, the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They're all attributed within the Bible to Moses. And so beginning with Moses and then the prophets, uh, he expounds to them all the scriptures concerning himself. And I'm sure that was quite a walk to Emmaus on that day uh, as he expounded the scriptures in regard to himself. Now again, this is nothing new. Early in Jesus' ministry, he was speaking to a group of contentious Jews in John chapter 5, and he told them this in verse 39. He said, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they 
which testify of me. He says, just search the scriptures. The scriptures testify of Messiah. The scriptures testify of my ministry. All the way to his death, his burial, his resurrection, the scriptures testify. Now, we certainly don't have time this evening to walk on that road to Emmaus with them and go through all of the various scriptures that testify of Messiah and of the nature of Messiah in the Old Testament, although that would be a fun uh, sermon series perhaps at some point. That being said, I would like to take a few moments and beginning at Moses, I'd like to talk through a few promises of Messiah. And as we do so, I'm going to highlight particularly a few that speak of his death and his glorification. So in Genesis 3.15, we find the first prophecy of the Messiah that would come. Uh, God is speaking here to the serpent, that would be Satan, according to Revelation, that old serpent, the devil. And he says in verse 15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It, that would be the seed of the woman, shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. The very first promise of Messiah given to Satan in Genesis 3.15 was a promise that the seed of the woman would destroy the head of the serpent, would crush him, while simultaneously the serpent would wound the Messiah, would bruise his heel. So we have this promise that there must be some sort of uh, weakening or, or suffering of Messiah, even in that first promise. I'm going to go through one more before I get to another suffering passage, just because I love it so much. Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and 19. This is God speaking to Moses. And as God speaks to Moses, soon before Moses' death, he says this, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. This, I think, is my favorite messianic prophecy in the entire Old Testament, just because of how it comes about. How it comes about is that in Exodus 18, 19, 20, when God is giving Israel the Ten Commandments, uh, he actually physically came, this is before God gave the tablets to Moses, God came down in, in thunder and in lightning onto the mountain, and the mountain was on fire. And it says that he spoke in the voice like, like trumpets in many waters, and he gave them the Ten Commandments from his voice to them. And when the Ten Commandments were finished, the Bible says that the nation of Israel went to Moses and begged Moses to never, ever again let God speak to them. You speak to God, Moses, then you speak to us, but never again let God speak directly to us because we know if he speaks to us again, we're going to die. His holiness, his power, his righteousness was so overwhelming to the nation that the nation said, never again. <laughs> we don't want to. We will listen to you, Moses. If you say it, if you say thus saith the Lord, we'll believe you. We trust your word. You, you talk to God. Don't let us talk to God anymore. And as you, we initially think about this, uh, I would say my first reaction would be, wow, that, that would make God angry, right? That, that they are rejecting God directly and they want an intercessor. But it doesn't make God angry at all. God says what they have asked is right. This is a good thing that they have asked of, of you. And he says this here. This is the, the, the reason why. The reason why is because God knew that there was coming a day when there would be a new intercessor between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. And if Israel was willing to accept God's word at the mouth of a, a prophet 
of a, of a validated prophet of God, then they were one step closer to accepting the ministry of Messiah when he came. So God says, this is a good thing that they have said, that they don't want to speak directly to me, that they are willing to listen to me by means of an intercessor. And then he promises in Deuteronomy 18 that that intercessor would come, like unto Moses, that God would put words in his mouth and that he would speak all the words of the Lord. That's a promise of Messiah. Now, two more prophecies regarding Messiah's death, suffering, and glorification that I'd like to go to. Uh, these will be fairly familiar in Isaiah 52 and 53. In Isaiah 52, verses 13 and 14, we read this, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were stoned at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. It's interesting, just before the messianic promises of Isaiah 53, which we'll get into in a moment, where it speaks of his suffering and, and uh, him bearing the sins of the world, we see this unique promise where it begins with his extolling and exaltation, and then immediately goes to this idea that his face would be so mangled that you could not even know he was a man. That you would not even be able to recognize him. How do those two thoughts meet together? How do such contradictory thoughts as extolled and exaltation from the Lord and tremendous suffering and a marring of his image come together? And in this we find what really becomes the coupling of Messiah's ministry. Suffering and anguish and death, which was necessary for His glorification, for His resurrection. We continue then in the chapter in verses 11 and 12 of verse 53 where the Bible says this, He, that would be God the Father, shall see the travail of His, that would be God the Son's soul, and shall be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. He will be exalted and extolled. His Messiahship is based upon his suffering and substitutionary atonement. They go together. He is not Messiah if he does not bear the transgressions of the world. He is not Messiah if he does not suffer and die for sin. And so Jesus is expounding this to them on the road to Emmaus. And we pick up now in our text in verse 28. And they drew nigh into the village, whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. So they get near Emmaus. Of course, these two men, they say, this is our stop. And Jesus makes as though he's going to continue along the way. Verse 29. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and break and gave to them. So they're enjoying his fellowship, they're enjoying his wisdom, they ask him to stay with them and to have a meal, to get some rest, perhaps strike out the next day to continue on his journey. He consents to this, and they sit down to eat. And the Bible tells us that he took bread, uh, kind of a unique thing as far as a guest would go, but he took bread, and the Bible says he blessed it, break it, and gave it to them. Now if that sounds familiar, it ought to. 
This is the very thing that Jesus did on the night in which he was betrayed when he instituted the Lord's Supper. In the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and, and he broke it and he blessed it, right? And he said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, right? So the Bible says in this case, he took it, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. But notice what we don't see here. We don't see the part where he says, take, this is my body, right? Um, and we would not expect that because Jesus told them on that night, he will not do that again until he does it with his disciples in the kingdom. But what does happen is this, verses 31 through 35. And their eyes were opened as he gave them the bread. The Bible says their eyes were opened. They knew him and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, did not our heart burn within us? while he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures, and they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed. He hath appeared unto Simon. That would be the disciples saying it to the two. And they told what things were done in the way. That would be the two talking to the other disciples and how he was known of them in breaking of bread. So what happens is as soon as Jesus gives them the bread, they recognize who he is. He departs. He disappears out of their sight. They say, this was Jesus. And then they kind of kick themselves. Did not our hearts burn within us as he expounded the scriptures to us? I don't know if you've ever had that happen to you, where uh, you've, you've felt that zeal of the Spirit of God as he's filled you. Uh, the times it most happens to me is when I'm either talking with someone about the scriptures or particularly witnessing. Uh, that night after I witnessed to Ben, I, I couldn't sleep. I didn't fall asleep until like two in the morning because I was so excited about the opportunity, praying for him, praying that the Spirit of God would be working in him. And that kind of that zeal, that excitement that wells up in you, the filling of the Spirit, you walk away from a conversation and say, wow, I didn't... I, I quoted verses I didn't even know I knew because you've, you, you have experienced the Spirit of God working in you. Uh, the same thing can happen when you uh, hear a Spirit-filled message, a Spirit-filled sermon, where it wells up in you this fire from within, that burning in your heart as the Spirit of God testifies of the truth in your ears. That's the idea. They felt that. They said, we knew that this was true. We, we, we had that, that burning of our heart within us that should have testified to us that this was the Savior. And the Bible says the same hour, right? They invited this man, who was Jesus, into their home because it was getting late. And now the same hour after they've broken bread, they get up and they start the seven-mile trek back to Jerusalem because they're so excited. They're so worked up. They've got to tell others, we've seen him too. So they get there. And when they get there, the Bible says the disciples, not just the twelve, and we'll talk about why it says twelve in a minute, not just the twelve, but... Um, but Another, a, a, a larger group, stop and, and say, we, we have heard from Peter. Peter saw Jesus. It's true. He's risen. And then those two disciples say, yeah, we walked with him on the road to Emmaus. We know it's true. We saw him too. And so they have this back and forth, this excitement of recognizing that Jesus is indeed risen. Now, I'm not there yet. Okay. Um, and this is what we see. This idea that, that they testified that he'd been seen of Simon is what we see as Paul testified in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 5, the Bible says, after, after Paul gave the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, and that he was seen of Cephas then of the twelve. So we understand from Paul... 
And that corroborates with what we find here, that before Jesus appeared to the twelve in the upper room, he appeared to Peter singularly. We don't have this account in Scripture. We don't know what happened at that time. But presumably, maybe after John and Peter left the sepulcher, maybe they went their separate ways, and Jesus appeared individually to Cephas. Cephas is the, the Hebrew name for Peter, which was the name given to Simon by Jesus. His given name is Simon Barjona. Jesus called him Peter. The Hebrew rendition of the Greek name Peter is Cephas. So he actually took on the name Cephas rather than Simon um, because he wanted to maintain the special name that Jesus had given to him. I hope that made sense. So he was seen of Cephas. Cephas saw him. Now these two men have seen him as well. And then we have this statement by Paul that he was seen of the twelve. Now, When those twelve, when the two disciples from Emmaus arrived and talked to the disciples, the Bible says in verse 33 that they found the eleven gathered there. Now the eleven would be everyone but Judas Iscariot, because Judas Iscariot was dead. The eleven including Thomas. We know, in, as we'll see in just a moment, when Jesus appears to the disciples in the upper room, only ten are there, Thomas being missing. However, other disciples were there as well. And one of those disciples, without question, was Matthias, who is not yet inducted as one of the apostles, but no doubt was there. No doubt was there, which is why he was seen of the twelve. Matthias wasn't one of the twelve yet, but he was still there when the Lord appeared unto the disciples. So that's what's happening there. So Jesus was seen of the twelve after Peter individually, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. So as we get back in our text, the 11, those with them, they're already excited. These two have come to tell them. They tell each other their independent accounts. We continue then in verse 36. The Bible says, And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them. So remember, as they thus spake, right? So they're right now talking this back and forth. Thomas has left. They're still speaking. We don't know how long it's been since they arrived. But they came, they arrived, they told their accounts back and forth. And then at some point Thomas leaves. Because we know he's not there for this. And there are the, 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 the ten there. There's Matthias there, most certainly. And other disciples, including the two that were on the road to Emmaus, we would presume. And it says, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted. And suppose that they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, why are, you, why are you troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands, my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye have seen me. As ye see me have, excuse me. So while everyone is gathered, that would be the ten. Thomas is gone. Uh, those that are with the ten, including Matthias. These two that were on the road to Emmaus who have come to report. Jesus appears in the midst and he says, peace be unto you. And this group is anything but peaceful about, at, at, at Jesus' proclamation here. They're terrified. They're thinking that they're seeing a spirit here, an apparition of Christ. Jesus goes out of his way, however, to show that he is not a spirit. He says, spirit does not have flesh and bones. I have flesh and bones. Touch me, feel me. I am flesh and bones. He asks why these thoughts have even, uh, these thoughts have even arisen in their hearts. 
in each case of people's shock and surprise, he speaks very matter-of-factly to them. If they had the faith to believe what Jesus had said, then none of this would be a huge surprise to them to begin with, right? So Jesus shows them his hands, he shows them his feet, he encourages them to touch him, indicating last week, as we mentioned, that Jesus has now ascended. Remember, he told Mary she could not touch him because he had not yet ascended unto the Father. Now, most certainly, he has ascended as he is allowed to be touched. And we also note that his body, which is indeed flesh and bone, is able to disappear and to appear at will. We've seen it now twice where he just appears and then he disappears. Uh, this might, as we talked about this morning in Sunday school, give us just a little sneak peek into what our resurrected bodies might be like. Then Jesus continues in his efforts to convince them. Verses 40 through 44, the Bible says, And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered... He said unto them, Have ye here any meat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and of a honeycomb, and he took it and did eat before them. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. So Jesus ups the ante. He says, Yeah, you've touched me. Now you felt me. Now you know that I'm flesh and bone. Let's do this. I'll eat as well. And so he takes a piece of broiled fish and he takes a honeycomb and he eats them, proving once again that he is human, that he is, that this is a physical bodily resurrection, that he's not just an apparition. He's not just a disembodied spirit. He is a physical resurrected body here. And then he commands, um, uh, he, he questions them, excuse me. And he says, these are the words that I spoke to you. When I was with you, I told you that the, the prophecies must be fulfilled concerning me. And here he doesn't just mention Moses and the prophets, as we saw with the men on the road to Emmaus, but we see as well mentioning the prophecies of the Psalms, which are extremely prophetic and uh, very messianic indeed. We continue in the text, verses 46 through 49. I'm moving pretty quickly because there's a lot of text. We read this. And, he, and said unto them, Thus it is written... And thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I sent the promise of my Father unto you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. So Jesus tells them many things that were written in the Old Testament Scriptures. He told them it had been written that Christ needed to suffer. It had been written that Christ needed to rise from the dead. It had been written that repentance and remission of sins needed to be preached to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. All of those things are Old Testament principles. All of those things are things which we can understand from prophecy. And on this day, Jesus tells this group they were witnesses of the fulfillment of all of those prophetic utterances. But all had not yet been fulfilled. While Jesus was with them, he had promised them that he would send a comforter. And he said that that comforter would be his Holy Spirit. Jesus called it the promise of my Father. So he commands this group that they are to remain in Jerusalem until they are endued with the power from on high. Now, this command would not necessarily be in effect right away. And what I mean by that is that this is still the day of Jesus' resurrection, right? We're still on day one. We know, 
And we even saw commanded already when the angels and Jesus were speaking to the women, go and tell the disciples that they must go to Galilee for Jesus said he would meet them there, right? So we know that they are not going to just remain in Jerusalem for the next 50 days, 47 days, because they have to go up to Galilee to receive the teaching. That's where Jesus will see Peter. That's where Peter will be restored. The lovest thou me more than these thing. All that happens in Galilee, off the Sea of Galilee. So this command would, though it sounds quite dogmatic, you must stay in Jerusalem, it'll actually more or less go into effect at Jesus' ascension. Remain in Jerusalem until such time as the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So there's not really a contradiction there. We just don't have all of the, the parts that, that are recorded or given. So he commands this, that they would remain in Jerusalem until the Spirit of God comes upon them. We mentioned already that only the ten apostles are here now for this first appearance. Judas is dead. Matthias is there, though not one of uh, the twelve. So there were eleven present, but Thomas is missing. And we know this from... John 20. And in John 20, beginning in verse 24, we read this. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see his hands, in his hands, excuse me, the print of, his, of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after that eight days, again, his disciples were within. Thomas was with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God, Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. So we know then that for at least eight days, they remained in Jerusalem, these disciples. Because it was eight days after Jesus' initial resurrection that the disciples are in the room again, meeting together, not just the eleven, most, most certainly, or the twelve. We would understand it to be a broader group, most likely. And Thomas is with them, and Jesus appears again. He, he just appears, and he gives the proofs that Thomas demanded. Thomas is able to place his hands into the nail scars in his hands, his hands into Jesus' side where he had been pierced. And Jesus does this in great mercy and in patience with Thomas. Be not faithless, but believing. Thomas bows before the Savior in belief, calling him my Lord and my God. Thomas did believe, but he wanted that physical evidence. And this was a point of lamentation for our Lord and a good lesson for us, a good reminder to us. The Lord looked at Thomas and gave him those words, which we just read, of profound depth. And also prophetic promise to all who would believe in the words of Jesus Christ in the future. Because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are they whom have not seen, but have yet believed. We finish the chapters. We go back to Luke 24, verses 50 to 53. 50, 
three. I'm sorry, I've had 54 all night on, on the screen there, but it's only through verse 53. My apologies. The Bible says, And he led them out as far as to Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. Now we skip several days of Jesus' life here, right? We have eight days that the disciples are in Jerusalem where we don't even know where Jesus is. And then we have them go up to Galilee. And we know this again from the book of John, from the Acts of the Apostles. We understand what, what Matthew tells us. Matthew tells us that it was in Galilee when he was speaking to the 500 people, the, the, the 500 that had gone up to Galilee that Paul says 500 saw him at one time. That was in Galilee. And Paul, when, when they're up there learning from Jesus, that is where Jesus gives his great commission of Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. We um, see that that is also, as I mentioned, where the, the disciples were fishing on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus appears to them there. All of that is skipped in Luke, and we go directly to the day of his ascension, which uh, we don't know exactly when it is, likely several days before the day of Pentecost. And the Bible says that they journeyed together as far as Bethany. Bethany was on the other side of the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. We know that Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives, so they went toward the other side, toward Bethany. They're on the Mount of Olives. And we know from the other Gospels and even Luke's continued treatise in the book, uh, in the Acts of the Apostles, that it was on that mount that Jesus ascended and he blesses them. We have record of the words of these blessings in Acts. We do not have them here in Luke. In Acts, the disciples ask if Jesus will now restore his kingdom. Lord, will you now restore your kingdom? I almost preached another message next week on Acts chapter 1 just to round things out, but I thought, no, it's just, let's just. Move on here. So I didn't. I'm not. So I'm just summarizing it here. Uh, they ask if he'll restore his kingdom now. And he reminds them that it is, it is only in the power of God and the knowledge of God to know when the kingdom will be at hand. And he tells them that they would receive power by the Holy Spirit and they would be witnesses for him in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. So he ascends. And again, the Acts of the Apostles tells us that they're up staring into heaven where Jesus ascended and an angel comes down, a man clothed in white, and says, why are you standing up here staring into the heavens? He'll return in the same way he's come. Go do the work. Go get busy. And uh, so they go back to Jerusalem. They're now in Jerusalem waiting for the gift of the Father, which is the Spirit of God, which would fall upon them 50 days after Jesus' death on the day of Pentecost. And on that day, the church would begin and the disciples would begin the process of, of fanning out into the uttermost parts of the world and reaching men and women with the gospel of Jesus Christ, their success of which lives on in the very people in these seats some 2,000 years later. Their legacy is ours because it was there. Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' death, the Spirit of God fell upon them. They began a work which continues through Legacy Baptist Church in 2018. That being said, let's apply. Three questions for you this evening. Question number one. Do you live in the joy of the resurrection? Now, we considered this last week. I'm bringing this point up again. We, we have this point last week, and I'm not going to rehash the point. But I want to ask it again. You've had a week now to allow, two weeks in fact, to allow the realities 
of the resurrection to be reinvigorated in your heart. Last time we were together, we saw Mary and her reaction and the, the other women and their reaction. And, and, and we considered these things together. This week, we see the disciples on the road to Emmaus. We hear of Cephas. We see the other disciples, the twelve and, and the others that were with them. We consider all of this. Their shock, their amazement, their hope at the end of sorrow. We so easily take for granted today when we say the resurrection, right? Jesus rose from the dead. Let us be renewed in our hearts with the impact and the supernatural power of what happened on that day. That Jesus rose from the dead. That because He lives, so too can we. That we, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, will be in heaven one day. And the power that we have to live free from sin, the power that we have uh, to, to walk in the Spirit, and then the power that will one day be ours, whereby we will not end up separated from God for eternity was realized on that day. On that day is the, the, the culmination of so many years of prophecy. So many prophecies themselves. Do you live in the awe and the wonder and indeed the joy of that moment? The joy in the hearts of the disciples as they recognize that the Lord lives is the joy that rests in the heart of one who has accepted Christ as their Savior? Are you living in that joy? Is there a time that you can think back on where that joy was there and now things have just gotten a little bit stagnant? Can I use that word? Can you be reinvigorated this evening with the joy of your salvation, with what it means to you, with what it took for it to take place? with the power of God that was being exercised on your behalf on the day that God raised Jesus from the dead. For you. Do you live in the joy of the resurrection? Point number two. Do you live in the commission of the ascension? Do you live in the commission of the ascension? Jesus on several occasions in the days leading up to his ascension told his disciples what they were supposed to be doing while he was gone. In our text this evening, Jesus spoke of the Old Testament prophecies that repentance and remission of sins would be preached among all nations beginning at Jerusalem, right? He said that that was one of the prophecies of the Old Testament that was fulfilled on that day, that would be, begin to be fulfilled on that day. We then considered ever so briefly uh, the Acts of the Apostles, where the angel says, why are you standing up into heavens? Go and get busy. In Matthew 28, and I mentioned it, but we haven't gone there yet. We're going to go there in a moment. While in Galilee, the Bible says Jesus stood upon a mountain. Like he had done so many times before his death and resurrection. And he spoke to his followers who were gathered around below him. As I mentioned, this is that group of 500 at one time that we, we find in the scriptures uh, in 1 Corinthians 15. And he gave them these words. The Bible says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son 
and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Not everyone is called to be a pastor teacher. Not everyone is called to be an evangelist missionary. Not everyone is called to a manner of full-time Christian ministry. But we are all called to do our part. All around us are men and women in need of the truths of God's Word. They live devoid of the hope of eternal life, of the joy of the resurrection, which if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you have found. They operate filled with solutions rooted in a world of darkness, alienated from the life of God. Some long for this solution, though they've never heard it. Others, the thought has never even crossed their mind. Or they've put it out of their minds that the solution is found in Christ. But for we who are in Christ, there is no mystery regarding just how important the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Imagine that you were one of those 500 sitting on that mount on the grass as Jesus stood and, and, and said those words. And you knew something. You knew that some days earlier, at most, probably 40, I don't know how many days, somewhere within that 50-day span, right? Some days earlier, Jesus had been dead. On a cross, bleeding, spear stuck into his side, out came blood and water. The, 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 the elements had separated because he was dead. That happens, I believe, what do we say, eight minutes after death that that takes place? He's dead. They put him in a tomb for three days. And the third day, he's gone. Then they all begin to see him. What you're reading is the urgency in the book of Acts. You're reading the urgency with which these eyewitnesses were desperately trying to tell people that this Messiah is alive. And the power that he has, the resurrected power, can, can be in them unto eternal life. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. If you have accepted the gospel, then you know the gospel. The next natural step then is this, that you communicate the gospel. If you truly believe that there was a man who lived on this earth, who did the works of God, who is God in flesh, who died and who rose again from the dead, this is a message that people need to hear. This is something that is so spectacular that we dare not be ashamed of it. So spectacular. The working in the heart of of. One who accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior is so powerful. Why would we do anything other than share? Do you live in the commission of the ascension? Are you ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you? One more question as we close. Do you live in the power of the Spirit? The disciples, as we leave them, and we'll probably leave them for some time. I don't intend to do Acts here uh, anytime too soon. So we won't get into the Acts of the Apostles for a while. 
But as we leave these apostles, they are, they are in Jerusalem preaching at the temple and waiting for the power of the Spirit of God to fall upon them. We know that that will happen on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit on that day fell upon them. They were endued with power that jolted the church into existence, that propelled it from generation to generation. And as we've said already, that power that fell upon them on that day is the, is the legacy of, of legacy. It's the legacy of our church. It's the legacy of every New Testament Bible-believing church. It has all come from that day, from that power, from the power of the Spirit of God who is within us. And that same Spirit is in you if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Do you, do you walk in the Spirit? Do you live in that power? One of the most important lessons of living the Christian life and sharing the gospel with the unbelieving world is that you're not alone in this. The Christian life is not just about me disciplining myself. The, the, the act, of evangeliz- act of evangelism excuse me, is not about me becoming the most convincing person I can be and just convincing people of things through charisma and through rock-solid arguments. The power of the Christian life is not discipline. The power of the Christian life is the Spirit of God. Walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's our memory verse for next month. Galatians 5.16 The power of evangelism in the Christian life is not the power of charisma. It's not the power of good arguments. It's the power of the Spirit of God as you partner with Him to win souls to Christ. So the question is, do you live in the power of the Spirit? Are you seeing it? Are you experiencing it in your life? Are you walking with the Spirit? Do you see the fruit of the Spirit born out in you? Are you living this life partnered with God? Or are you attempting to power your own way through? Imagine if the disciples had said, Oh, okay, so we are to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and all the earth. And Jesus said this thing about staying in Jerusalem, but we're, we, we want to get going, so let's just do this thing. Imagine the tremendous failure that would have been the New Testament church, right? As they attempted to go out into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth without the power of the Spirit of God. But they waited. They received the power. And then they ministered within the power. Are you doing the same? Are you walking in the Spirit? Are you giving lip service to God while relying upon yourself? To overcome sin, relying upon yourself to win others to Christ, relying upon yourself to do the things of God, or are you submitted to the Spirit of God and partnering with Him and allowing Him to work in you and through you to do the work of God in this world? Much has happened in these days where Jesus, having risen from the dead, was seen of men. The impact of those days lives on in the, in the church of Jesus Christ in 2018. It lives on in this church. It lives on in our families. It lives on in our individual lives. And so we spent the last two years now studying the life of Jesus Christ as recorded by Luke. And I hope it's been a profitable study for you. Jesus has said many things about listening, about uh, hearing, about obeying, about submission. But it ends in this vein. That the power of the Spirit of God was going to fall on men. And that they were going to have a brand new ministry as they awaited His sure return. We are now part of that ministry as we await His sure return. How are we doing this evening with it?
Are we being the body of Christ? Are we living that legacy? Are we passing that legacy on faithfully?